I hope you're all well. It is a nice, lovely, sunny day. I'm appreciating the cooler weather. I don't know about you, but it's quite lovely. My front lawn is loving it as well. So we'll be in Isaiah 66 today, and yes, we'll, God willing, be completing the passage that we've been reading through for I don't know how long, but it's been good. And uh, yes, we'll be in, God willing, finish this one today. One of my favorite scenes in Scripture is when freshly anointed King Jehu rides furiously in his chariot into Samaria, and he had been chosen by God to exact justice on the house of Ahab. And so he had been doing that place to place, and he comes into Samaria, the principal city, and Jezebel the queen the woman who was responsible for the death of countless righteous people, she heard he's coming, and so she prepares herself. She says she paints her face. She puts the the royal crown on her head, and she looks out the window, and she she throws some sarcasm at him and insults him, and uh, he doesn't pay her any mind, but he just says, um, in 2 Kings 9.32, he looked up, at the window and said, who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and then he said three things, three words. He said, throw her down. Okay, so this is like a... If you put yourself in the position of those men who their job was to attend to their queen, and now you have the new king riding into town, and he tells you, throw her down. You have a split second to decide who you're going to have. If you're going to keep being loyal to Jezebel the queen, or if you're going to choose to obey the new king. They could not be loyal to Jehu and to Jezebel. They had to choose one. It's just one of those really uh, pivotal moments, and uh, they chose Jehu. So they obeyed his command. And for us, this, this happens for us every day. We can choose, like Joshua said, Choose this day whom you are going to serve. Choose whose side you're going to be on. You can't serve the world and God. You can't serve both God and money. That If you love the world and the things of the world, then um, you can't love God as you should. So we need to choose if we're going to be loyal to ourselves, loyal to idols, or if we're going to throw them down and really throw ourselves down at the mercy of God and say, you are my king and I'm going to honor and obey you. Let's pray, and we'll get into the passage. Lord, thank you so much for your word, that it's powerful and it's true, and you tell us the truth. You don't hide the facts from us. You don't give us an apology. You don't ask for our forgiveness, but you say that we need forgiveness. You're the one who's holy. You're the one who's right. And so we come before you, Lord, as your humble servants, and we ask that you would teach us today, that you would fill us with your spirit, and you'd give us understanding of these things, because you are good and loving and holy and trustworthy. Lord, we've been wrong so many times. We've, we've been mistaken, but you never have been, nor will you ever be. And so we love you, Lord, and we thank you that you are a great God, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus spoke of a day when God will divide all people into two separate groups, just like a shepherd will separate the sheep from the goats. Now, to me, there are some goats that look a lot like sheep and sheep that look like goats, 
But see, God, he, he knows the nature of both of them. They're quite different. If you've ever done a study between the nature of goats and sheep, so much about them is different, where sheep will flock together and goats can be solitary and, um, how they, one eats from the top down, the other eats from the bottom up, and just on and on. And how God knows those who have been born again through the gospel. He knows those that are His. He knows who are in His fold, who have repented and trusted in Him. The ones who have been born again. And He also knows those who have rejected the gospel. And they've rejected His commands. And we live in a day, I think this has always been, we, we enjoy labeling ourselves or others, but there's one label that's going to stick forever, and it's if you're a friend or an enemy of God. Those you have to keep forever. And those who humble themselves before God, it says He will exalt. And those who exalt themselves against God, He will cast down. We can label ourselves Christians, but only God's righteous assessment is going to stick. It's kind of like if I spend $40,000 on a, on a diamond and I take it in to be appraised and they say, hey, it's fake. It's worth like 300 bucks. And I'm like, but wait a second. Look how much I spend. Do you see how much I spent? It's got to be at least that much. I was hoping it was worth 80000 I was hoping it was worth double my investment. The guy's, sorry. It may be shiny. You may have thought you made a good deal, but it's a terrible deal for you. It's worthless. And so we can have an opinion of ourselves, but it's God's opinion that really matters. And he's, he's shown his love for us by sending Jesus to be our Savior. And if, we, if I call myself a servant of God, well, then I should be serving him, right? And are we walking worthy of that as his followers? So Isaiah 66, verse 1. It says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. A king sits on a throne as a ruler and a judge a lawgiver, and God paints this picture. He says, heaven, the universe, is my throne. That's my resting place. And the earth is like my footstool. If the universe isn't large enough to contain God, he says, who can build a house worthy of me that can contain me? Nothing can contain me. Because he's infinite. God doesn't have any need of man providing him accommodation because he's created everything, right? And God's majesty, his sovereignty, it brought this necessary change in the perspective of his people. Because they looked at the temple, and the temple was gilded with gold. You know, it had the gold of Lebanon. I mean, the cedars of Lebanon and the gold of Ophir. And it had been crafted uh, beautifully and adorned with uh, stones. And it was, it was lovely to behold. And people go, ah, this is a worthy place. And he's like, it's not worthy because of the gold or because of the, the silver or because of the articles that are in it. I am there by grace. It's not because the gold makes it worthy. I'm. It's my presence that makes it holy. So God made it holy. Was it impressive to offer God a place of authority on his footstool? 
Now, I've looked at a footstool or an ottoman, and I've never thought that would be a great place to live. I mean, seriously. You'd be like standing on the thing. It'd be the most uncomfortable thing ever. You know, oh, here's a spot on my footstool. And he's like, earth is my footstool. So God, his, he is glorious. He's great. And I mean, what can we provide him when he has everything, when he's made it all? And so God's people, they had ceased to look to God. They stopped understanding how great God was, and they saw this temple. And then they began to notice their sacrifices and all their offerings to God. And they began to think of themselves as pretty good before God, forgetting how great God is. God could have swept them away like dust off of the ottoman. You know, just back of his hand, just quick, they're gone forever without a trace. But he said, listen to what he says, But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, who trembles at my word. The Bible says that God's eyes go to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for hearts that are loyal to him. He's The, whole, the nations are as a drop in the bucket to God, and yet he looks for an individual. He looks at you, and he says, do you tremble at my word? Do you reverence it? When I say something, do you believe I can do this? That I will do this? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And those who come before God as a poor beggar, having nothing to give him, being hungry and thirsty, having this contrite spirit, contrite meaning smitten, lame, or maimed, just realizing that you have nothing. You're not worthy of God. God's going to look upon that person and he hears their cry. He's the one that he, you'll get his attention. It's like you can't get God's attention with great lavish gifts. That's not the way to win win his favor. But his favor is visited upon those who humble themselves before him and say, I've got nothing, God. I'm useless. I'm hopeless. I've I've got nothing. I'm a liability to you, and yet you love me, and you care for me, and you want me to be with you forever? And so the question is, did you come to God as a needy beggar at the beginning, and have you increased in humility? Or are we like those born into old money? We've been born again, and we're a little bit haughty now, because we, uh, we have resources to draw upon. We have little compassion small forgiveness, we forget how much we need God, just as much as ever. Let's never forget our weakness and our lameness and our inability to do anything and come to God and find our sufficiency, find our strength in him. Verse 3, he who kills a bull as if he slay, is as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol, just as they have chosen their ways and their soul delights in their abominations. So will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. God's talking about the people in Israel, his people, the Jews to whom he gave his law. And he had given them commands and sacrifices to do. And they thought because they did these sacrifices, they were acceptable. 
and cleansed before God. So they were performing all these religious duties, and Jesus said, well, was it said of you to people in his day? But he's saying, you're drawing near to me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. And that's what was happening here. People were offering their sacrifices, but there was no repentance. There was no remorse. There was no brokenness for the things they had done. And because they were continuing to sin, they offered the sacrifice. He says, this is an abomination to me. It's just like as if you offered a human sacrifice or a dog on my altar. Now, if you had tried to do that in the temple at this time, you would have been hustled out of the city and probably thrown headlong. It would have been the death penalty for you. If you had gone in there on the altar where the libation offerings were poured out and poured pig's blood out, it would have defiled it. There would have been an uproar. But the same people that were would have had this great uproar against this defilement, they were defiled. And they didn't see it. They were deluded. They were deceived. They thought that they were in good standing with God. But God is saying, you can do all these things, but if there's no repentance in your heart, if you haven't changed, if you haven't ceased doing the evil that you're sacrificing for, then it's an abomination to me. It's not acceptable. So this passage teaches us if we delight in abominations, it makes our sacrifice abominable. Say a man is greedy and covetous. He owns a business and, and he often does not pay his workers on time. And he'll pay them less than what is in the contract value. Because, hey, he can. No one can stop him. And at the same time, he decides that he is going to fast from food for two weeks. Not going to eat anything. And all money he would have spent on food, he's going to give to the poor. Now, we would see this guy and go, wow, two weeks of eating no food, giving all that money to the poor for those in need, that seems devout. That seems like a good thing, right? But the, the sacrifice of fasting, it's abominable because of his greed he has chosen not to repent of. So even the sacrifice that men go, whoa, what a holy man, what a great guy. He's really devoted to God, but it, it's abominable because he has not repented. Now, we can easily be deluded, can't we? I think of, well, a scripture example. You have Saul of Tarsus, right? Here's this devout man, this Pharisee, and he made it his, his end to rid the world of Christians, to wipe this heresy off the face of the earth. And so he pursued Christians into these foreign cities, and he thought he was doing God's work. But it took God knocking him off of his animal and blinding his eyes for three days to change his perspective and really open his eyes that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God that he's been persecuting all this time and that he had a plan and a call upon his life to serve Jesus and it transformed him. And so God, he pulled like those scales from his eyes so he was able to see the truth and realize, wow, God, I've been sinning all this time. I didn't even know it. See, I need God to do that to me, and you need God to do that for you. Because Saul couldn't see it. He was deluded. The people in, uh, in Isaiah's day, they couldn't see it. They were doing the best they knew. 
but they had chosen their own way. You might think that it's fun, it's silly that God would discipline or punish people who are deluded. But understand, it wasn't just that people really were ignorant. They had no knowledge of the truth. Notice it says, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chosen all that I did not delight. So it wasn't that they didn't know the truth or they didn't understand it. They chose to go their own way. They made a deliberate choice to ignore God and to go their own way. I remember once I used to carpool with a mate when we, when we were working far, um, in LA and, uh, I'd get at his house before the break of dawn, probably at like 4 a.m., 4.30. And I'm like, you know, knocking quietly at first. And then I'm knocking a bit harder. I'm ringing the doorbell. I know he has a roommate, so I'm trying to be, but at a point, it's like, you know, I've been here for 10 minutes. I'm going to be late. Man, he's got to figure out his own transport. And then I would leave. Now, God did much more than this. It's like he came into the bedroom and he shook him. And he knew that that guy was pretending to be asleep because he didn't really want to go to work that day. And he was just hoping that he'd leave. And so he's like, hey, I know you're awake and I know you can hear me. This is what you need to do. You know, kind of rolling over. Okay. So God had done that. He sent his prophets. He shook them. He said, look, war, suffering, famine, pestilence, all these things are coming upon you to get your attention so that you might wake up. But like I've been told, it's impossible to wake someone up who's not sleeping. They didn't want to be woken up. They didn't want to give up the sins. And so God would discipline them. It's pretty hard to deny knowledge to the one who knows hearts. To say, I didn't know. I had no idea. Like playing dumb with God, we totally can do that. But God's like, I know that you know. And you know that I know that. So what are you doing? Come to your senses, man. And when your great fears come upon you, because he says, I will choose their delusions and I will bring their fears upon them. When your fear comes upon you, It's good for us to examine our hearts and say, Lord, am I walking in the truth or am I going my own way? Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake and said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God? God gave his word to people so they would hear him. Verse 5, it reminds me of the time when Jesus uh, healed a man who had been born blind. And the man had gone to the synagogue. And the men who hated Jesus, and they, they said to him, Give God the glory, for we know this man is a sinner. And he says, Whether this man's a sinner, I have no idea. All I know is, I was once blind, 
but now I see. And they're like, what? You're going to like lecture us? And so they threw him out of the synagogue. And he was put out of the synagogue by people who said, give God the glory. Right? And, and Jesus is the one who deserved the glory because he's God. He came to save. And there's many times that the spiritual elites have castigated uh, righteous people. Jesus, perfect example. He was crucified when he only did what was pleasing in the sight of the Father that those scribes and Pharisees claimed to serve. God did a miraculous thing in birthing the Jewish nation out of Egypt. From what, have you ever heard of a nation who didn't yet have a land? No land. They were looking for land. They were a nation without land. In every other case I know, you either start, like a, it starts as a small thing and it grows within the land, and then it may conquer other lands, but it's always has this home base. But the Jews were not like that because they came out of Egypt as Hebrews and then they established the nation. Well, God established them in Canaan as Israel. And there's been dispersions throughout the years, but yet they have remained. Even when they were not a recognized nation, they are still around. Now, Jerusalem, God established them there and he would bring the Assyrians against Samaria. He would bring the Babylonians against Jerusalem. So when Isaiah said this, the temple was still standing. But he's like, you guys are going to be back here. I am going to rebuild this nation like you're being born again. And without the pain of labor, the labor pains of war or conquest, you're going to be brought back here. I'm going to do it. The length of gestation for a human being is about 280 days, about nine months. Well, it would be 70 years in Babylon, and without labor, they would come out. And so it says, who has ever heard of something like this? He did it in Egypt, he did it in Babylon, and even to this day, we have Jews returning to their land. When God brings to the birth he also causes delivery. Now, most of us have been touched by miscarriages or stillborn babies. But when God brings to the birth, he will cause delivery. There's no doctor who induces labor so the woman will not give birth. Right? That's so counterintuitive. It makes no sense whatsoever. Like, I'm going to induce you so you will not have the child. So God's saying, I'm not like that. If I induce labor and I cause that baby to form, then I will cause it to come to pass. It will be born. I will establish this nation again. Sometimes it seems like God's plans are taking forever to come to pass. We have ideas of when we think God should do something, but it seems like to drag on. And for us, the clock is ticking, right? we realize that the more the clock ticks, the more unlikely it seems that something could possibly happen. And for them, it had been ticking for 70 years. But God says, don't worry, I will bring it to pass. We worry about bills because there's a little date on there. It says due by. And then we're looking in our account and we're saying, okay, looking at the two, how, does this, how are we going to make this work? Right? I've got this bill due. The clock is ticking. 
How will I afford this by this time? It doesn't seem possible. But if you could turn in your Bibles to Psalm 31, verse 11, we can have great comfort by knowing our times are in God's hands. This passage was written by David when his life hung by a thread. When he was being pursued by King Saul for about 10 years, we don't know what period in that time, but during this season in his life, he felt like there was no one he could trust, there was no one he could rely on, even people he had considered close friends had turned against him and were scheming for his murder. Psalm 31:11. And remember, he had been anointed king already. He had been anointed king. Psalm 31:11. I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. For I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. So David's been slandered. His neighbors run away from him. Everyone's scheming to get him. They're taking counsel together to take his life. And he says, but as for me, I trust in you. And then he says, my times are in your hand. He knew this same God who when he causes to uh, start those contractions, he will bring it to pass. He hadn't anointed David as king to have him killed by Goliath, to be hunted down by King Saul, or by scheming enemies in his own house. David entrusted himself to God that God would deliver him in his time and in his way. And he says, Lord, my times are in your hands. I'm going to look to you. Save me for your sake. And that's what God does. He doesn't save us just for us, but for him, because he loves us, which is lovely. He has a vested interest in every single person in this room, every single person in the world. A deep, profound, everlasting love for that person, that they would know him and love him too. And a God who loves like that, and who's able to save like he can, what a God to worship and praise. Verse 10, back to Isaiah 66. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed. On her sides shall you be carried and be dandled on her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and his indignation to his enemies. 
Those who mourn the fall of Israel, they would rejoice in her restoration. And like a mother who produces milk to nourish and strengthen her baby, God would provide consolation for all through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was born of the tribe of Judah. I love that God gives us comfort. He gives us perfect peace. He's not just, I'm not just going to save you to have rest in eternity, but I am going to give you comfort and peace now in my presence. Jerusalem is a special place. Many times in Scripture, um, God says, like in Jeremiah 29.7, He says, Seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. And then He talks about Jerusalem in Psalm 122.6, where He says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. So Jerusalem is a special place, but it's not because of any natural beauty or spiritual necessity that God's chosen to place his name there. It's because of his grace. He chose that to place his name, just like he chose the Jews to be his people. God's eyes are on Jerusalem, but they're also in every other place. He loves all people. He wants all to come to the knowledge of the truth, whether you are Jewish in your background or you are a Gentile. God's presence, we've already heard. He says, who can contain me? My presence is not um, just more at the Temple Mount than anywhere else. No, my eyes go to and fro throughout the whole earth. And God, though the heavens cannot contain him, he says, I want to take up residence within you, you individually. I want to make your heart my home. You are where I want to live. And when we repent and trust in Christ, he comes inside and he dwells within us and he makes us born again. He makes us new. And then we have life with God, which starts now and continues for eternity. So regardless of what happens in Jerusalem, we can have peace. We don't have to make a pilgrimage to a place on the map to feel at peace. We can have peace with God right now. And that is wonderful. And there's two distinct camps spoken about here. It talks about uh, his servants. He says, when you see this, your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. When I was driving to church this morning, there was a lot of unmowed grass. I don't know if you've noticed, but man, it's getting tall. You know, it's like half a meter in some places all along the uh, the strip down the middle of the road. Your bones will flourish, like you'll be strengthened. You'll have, um, I mean, in your bones, that's what some people have, like a calcium deficiency, and their bones break easily. And they're not able to do a lot of physical things because of that. You have to be very careful. But he's like, your bones, they're going to be strong. Not just in a physical sense, but a spiritual one. That you'll be, you'll be filled with vitality. We know that in the bones, there's the marrow that produces blood cells. So this helps and aids for the health of the entire body. It says, your bones are going to be strong. You're going to have strength from within because of me. You will rejoice. But his enemies, that's the other camp, you have God's friend and then God's enemies, they will be exposed to his indignation. And as we'll see, it's not pretty. Verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind 
to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse, shall be consumed together, says the Lord. Now, if God is saying, I am going to deliver you from your enemies and you've got enemies outside your gates, this is welcome news because you know that God's powerful. Now, the problem was God's people are thinking, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. The heathen are the ones who are facing God's wrath. We're the ones who are protected. But shockingly to the Jews, he's like, I am going to employ the Assyrian, the Babylonian, to judge you, my people, to teach you my ways. And uh, Jerusalem was burnt with fire. Jerusalem was destroyed. And yet from those ashes, God would rebuild. Now this passage still has a future fulfillment when Jesus returns to judge the earth in righteousness. It's commonly called the second coming. But he says, with fire and with his sword, he will judge all flesh. So this is talking about a big event. It's not just in Jerusalem. He says, I will judge all flesh. And the reality is we all will stand before a living God and be judged. And his judgment or his wrath will be poured out on his enemies. God is not going to go easy on anyone who oppose him and who hate him, who have lived as God on the earth. He's not going to go easy. He will, he poured out his wrath on the idols of Egypt and without apology, he will unleash his fury on those who hate him. He says, I'm going to trouble those who've troubled my people. I will kill the killers. God is going to make sure that justice is done. Now, he's talking about in this passage, people who had a form of godliness, people who were going about their religious activities but without repentance. They were the ones that he would judge because they were abominable. They were doing abominable practices. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9, it says, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he talks about those two groups there, where you have God's people, but then it's split into two, those who don't know God and those who do not obey the gospel. So having a form of righteousness, but denying uh, the truth. And notice in Isaiah 66, 17, it says, who sanctify themselves and purify themselves. I can't cleanse myself. None of us can cleanse ourselves. The Bible says, who can make their hands clean from sin? If you sin, its stain is with you forever. We can't clean ourselves. But these people, they were trying to sanctify themselves. They were trying to purify themselves. And so they could not be purified. Man's best efforts to cleanse himself, it only condemns him because he denies God in the efforts of his religious output. 
Back to Isaiah 66, 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them. And those among them who escape, I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pul and Lud, who draw the bow and Tubal and Jevan, to the coastlands afar off, who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, and I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. So God knows the hearts. He knows the thoughts. Everything we, we think, it's laid bare before God. And our thoughts and words will be judged by God. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36 and 37, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And God will know the context, but at some point the context really doesn't matter because he can see our hearts. Now in the book of Revelation we read of 144,000 Jewish men who will be God's witnesses during the tribulation. This can refer to that, where it says, I will set a sign among them and being sent to the nations. They will declare his glory among the Gentiles. And the ultimate fulfillment is when Christ comes back um, to execute judgment. The remaining people will come and see his glory. Now, it's really cool when Israel was recognized first as a nation in, in recent times, in 1948, there was a law of return made in 1950 that if you had Jewish ancestry, you had the right to return and immigrate permanently to Israel. But at the moment, uh, it's not open to everyone. Like, if you're a non-Jew, you cannot immigrate permanently to Jerusalem. It says that right on the website, it says, Israel is not an immigration country. Like Australia is an immigration country. If you hear my voice, you can tell I'm not Australian. Um, so praise the Lord for that. And there has been a great ingathering of Jews throughout the years. There's still Jews that return every year from the far corners of the world where they've been dispersed. But a day is coming where... Word of Jesus Christ and his glory is going to go into all the world and people will be brought by every mode of transportation imaginable. I mean, I, when I see, hear of like people being dragged along in litters, you know, like you have like horses and they're kind of dragging the hurt person or um, the mules or the camels or there's everybody's coming from everywhere. These Gentiles are being brought to see Jesus and they're not going to be seen as a drain on the system or a threat they will be seen as brethren by the Jews. The Jews will see the out, they won't see us as outsiders. We'll all be one in Christ. And he says, of those people who come, I will make of them, just like a priest takes a clean vessel to serve, I'm going to cleanse those Gentiles so they can serve. They'll be priests and kings unto me. They'll serve in my house. And so we see the love of God for everyone. That it says, then they shall bring all your 
brethren for an offering to the Lord. And it will be an offering that's clean because God has cleansed it. Israel today is a nation under law. But Jesus will bring grace that unites. He is bringing, he is the foundation. Today, following Judaism, it can mean the exclusion of others who aren't quite Jewish enough, where you have legal ways that you have to prove how Jewish you are, either in practice or in, in your background. But a day is coming when all people will be accepted and brought in, united in Christ, clean vessels filled with the Spirit. And we'll close with Isaiah 66, 22. It says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants in your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. At the appointed time, God will create new heavens and new earth that will remain forever. This world is passing away. Everything in it, it's going to end. Then the very first chapter of this book, many moons ago when we began this study of Isaiah, it says that God had had enough of their abominable practices. In Isaiah 1, 13 and 14, he says, Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. So that was how he introduced the subject to them early on. He said, you're filled with hypocrisy. You're, you're, you're embracing abomination, but you're claiming to serve me. I've had it. I'm done with it. Knock it off. Quit it. Like, stop bringing your sacrifices. They're not acceptable. Now, you may think it's strange that if God desires people to be cleansed from their sin, number one, and that sacrifice is the means of cleansing for sin, and yet he's telling people to stop sacrificing. Why is that? Well, the problem was the hearts of the people, they had not repented of the sin that they were sacrificing for. And so it was abominable before him. And so he says, you know, consider your ways. Don't remain greedy. Don't keep oppressing people. Don't be smug in your self-righteousness. Where's the brokenness? Where's the repentance? When you're fasting and weeping, you're weeping for yourselves. It's not for me. Is this the fast that I have chosen? Haven't I said, you know, fast from sin rather than fasting for two months out of the year? Since they would not be broken before God, he would break them with famine. He would break them with the Babylonians. And you know, God will, his ways don't change. If we will not be broken for our sin, then he will break us in his way. And it will be a loving way because it will be at an end to restore us to him. He's going to make a difference between the clean and the unclean, the false prophet and the true. Let's see. It would be a real shame for us to hate 
or to oppose God instead of acknowledging our sin. It would kind of be like if, if you'd smoked for 30 or 40 years and you, you, your breathing's a bit rough and you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you know, you have a very advanced case of lung cancer and you've got six months to live. Now hearing that as a patient, wouldn't it be silly to direct hatred towards the doctor who's telling you the truth? It doesn't make sense. This is the one person who could actually have treatment options for you. But to hate that person, shouldn't you hate the cancer? Wouldn't you be better to to hate and regret the fact that you chose to concentrate smoke into your lungs for all those years to contribute to this condition? Isn't your anger focused on the wrong person? But that's what we can do with God. There you go, God, he, he must not be loving to send people to hell. Well, God does not send anyone to hell. He gives everyone the chance for heaven. He makes the way plain. If you will repent and trust in him, you don't need to go to hell. He wants to have life with you forever. And if you want that, you can have that. And Jesus comes as a conquering king. And he says, will you accept friendship with me or will you remain my enemy? Who is on my side? Who? This morning, last thing. As I was reading the Bible, I read how the priest was to keep the light of the menorah burning 24-7. The high priest's job was to put oil in the lamp and to trim the wicks. You know, when a wick gets old, it's blackened and, and it starts to be snuffed out. So you trim it and make it a little longer. So morning and night, he was always tending this light because it was to burn perpetually as an ordinance. It was the responsibility of the high priest. Well, we read of a priest named Eli. And one thing it says in Judges is, um, or 1 Samuel actually, where it says, and before the lamp of God went out at night. So that tells me that Eli was not trimming that wick. He was letting the light burn out overnight. Whether it was to save oil or he didn't want to be bothered during the night, he wanted to sleep in, I don't know. But it was a practice that he had let the light burn out at night. The time when it really should have been burning bright. And that oil in that vessel, it's a picture for us of how Jesus Christ is the light of the world and how through the Holy Spirit we too can have the light of Jesus shine through us. Now, there's no temple in Israel anymore. There's no need for that menorah because Jesus is the light. And, in, and he is the high priest. Instead of trimming wicks anymore, he says, you are my vessel. Will you not come before me and let me trim? Let me prune? Let me bring your life into a place where my light is shining perpetually through you. It's not going out at night where you, my glory is seen from you all the time because my love is in you. And so I want to encourage you with that. I, I really encourage you to consider, come before Jesus, the high priest, 
Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let him trim those old burnt-out wicks and be the friend of God. We don't throw down our idols so Christ will be our king. We throw down our idols because he is our king. That's the reality. Let's thank him. Lord, thank you that you are such a great God, that you've given us life, you've given us freedom, you've given us great joy and peace and comfort to know we will be with you forever and that you are with us now and you will not leave or forsake us. I pray, Lord, that each one of us would come before you now just bearing our hearts before you. Lord, have your way in each one. Trim away the the sin, the delusions that easily ensnare us, the weights that we begin to load ourselves down with, the worries and cares of this life. Lord, we commit them to you. And we, uh, we want to throw down our idols. Lord, please show us what they are. And help us to be roused by your hand, by your, uh, by the attention you have given us through your scriptures today that we would stand and we would rejoice and we would praise you for your goodness to us through Christ Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.